You guys ever seen any of these chalk drawings? This optical illusion, right? You have to stand at just the right vantage point. It doesn't make any sense if you're not looking at it from the right place. But when you're standing in the right place, it totally messes with your head. Somebody drew this out of chalk on a street and created the illusion from this perspective that the whole street has simply fallen away into the sky below. Perspective is the vantage point from which you see something. Four different people saw a different perspective or vantage point on Christ and wrote four different Gospels, each telling us something true about Jesus, but each had their own particular take on it. Because they each had their own perspective. You and I each have our own perspective on so many things in life. If I were to ask you to close your eyes and I would just simply rattle off certain words, images would come to mind very quickly and they would be different for everyone in this room. If I were to ask you to close your eyes and I said the word family, something different would come up in your mind than in anybody else's. If I said the name God, what would He look like in your mind's eye? Not the collection of doctrines or the ways that we talk about God theologically, but who is He to you? What is your perspective on God? Sometime back, I was driving north out of Omaha, Nebraska on Interstate 29, and right as I got into the state of Iowa, there's a tiny little town called Little Sioux, Iowa. And on the on-ramp to get into that town is this giant billboard that somebody put up. And this is it, Prepare to Meet Thy God. And I find it interesting because this billboard says something about what this guy believes in God. Because if I was going to drop a few grand to put up a billboard somewhere to say one thing about God, what would I say? What would you say? If you had one shot to tell the world what God looked like in your mind's eye, what you wanted them to know who He was, what words would be on that board? What is your perspective on God? Because the truth is, your perspective on God is shaped by so many different things that you now know about Him, about your experiences. What God looks like in your mind's eye is shaped by how your pastor prayed at the front of church growing up, about what you talked about God, about what your parents looked like. Many psychologists argue that the way we conceive of God in our mind is actually just simply a better version of ourselves and that God is actually a manifestation in our mind's eye of what we look like, only better. But we each have a pers- this guy's got a perspective. My guess is he sees a pretty angry God. I mean, the fact that he chose blood red letters to write this and that he made it as big as he did... And then he shows Amos 4.12, which I would even argue I think he took out of context here. But it's sort of a threatening sign. And I hear like a Charlton Heston voice of God for this guy. Prepare to meet thy God. Like that, in that guy's head of what God looks like to him. So what does God look like in your mind when you see him? We each have a perspective on God... And we each have a perspective that relates to how we see God, of how we see ourselves. John Calvin said there can be no knowledge of God without knowledge of self. There can be no knowledge of self without knowledge of God. That the two are completely intertwined. That if you really want to know who you are, and this is why we tell you to have time alone with God. This is why we tell you you need to be in the Word. So you can learn yourself and you learn God in the process. It's not because good people do things like spending an hour a day in the Bible. It's the people who want to know who they really are need to hear a voice of truth speaking over them. And I'm afraid that when I, 
when I, re- when I realize over and over again that as we describe ourselves and our experiences in the world, that we don't even see ourselves accurately, that your perspective on yourself is skewed. You ever thought about that? Then none of us actually see ourselves accurately. So what would it mean to see yourself clearly? I like this picture with a distorted vision of what this man actually sees when he looks back at himself in the mirror. What did you think when you looked in the mirror? Well, hopefully you looked in the mirror maybe before you left your room this morning. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. But what do you think and what do you see? Some time back I was challenged in an exercise um, by a pastor by the name of Bill Hybels. And he was asking each of us to, to engage in a, in a particular exercise. And I think this is in your, in your devotional for your time alone with God for tomorrow morning, this exercise. So I'm going to tell you that I did it first. And this is what happened to me. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to sit down for 30 minutes, like timed, 30 minutes uninterrupted, and stare yourself down in the mirror. I have never looked at myself in a mirror for that long before. But I wanted to see what this was like, but I kind of felt like a freak doing it. So I took a little mirror, and I drove half an hour out of town to Oak Grove State Park outside of Sioux Center, Iowa, and I put a mirror down on a picnic table, and then I put a timer beside it for 30 minutes, and I didn't want to break focus to write things down, but I wanted to remember this exercise, so I put a digital recorder beside that, and then I just started rattling off everything I said in some sort of free-flowing of consciousness, whatever I saw. And I saw at the beginning as I began this exercise, just like the first things that you would typically see, right? I saw, you know, there's some hair out of place, or there's something in my teeth, or there's a smudge on my cheek. And then I kept staring longer and longer, and then I started to find all the things the people had said about me as I was growing up. I realized that whenever I'm standing facing people, I tend to always look forward because when I was a little kid, everybody always told me that my nose was big and I'm very conscious of that. So I never give people a profile when I'm speaking publicly because in my little boy's mind's eye of who I am, I still have a really big nose. I'm 39 years old and to this day I cannot grow a beard. I was called babyface all my life growing up. Staring into a mirror, I saw the kids calling me babyface. I saw the crooked teeth in my bottom jaw. And I've mastered the ability to smile over the course of my life without showing you my bottom teeth because I am self-conscious about that. I have the shape of my dad's eyes. Everybody in his family, when they smile, they squint really big and their eyes kind of disappear. And people have often made fun of me for that. Um, But they're the color of my mom's and I kind of look more like her brother's than anything else. And so I saw my uncles looking back at me too. I saw all these things, one after another, staring back at me in this picture. This this image, this reflection of me. One of the things I wanted to do when I began this exercise was ask myself as well, how long would it take staring myself down to be able to see myself as God sees me? Because surely He is the one who has the accurate picture of who I am. And is it even possible for us to see ourselves the way that God sees us? Before I started, I read through this passage from Genesis 1, talking about the creation of man. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. 
so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. So God created you in His own image. In the image of God, He created you. Male and female, He created you. By the time the book of Genesis was written, it was a common practice in the ancient world that when a king established his palace and his reign, what he would do in the gardens that surrounded his palace was he would put a statue of himself. People would never get to meet the actual king or the pharaoh, but they could see what he looked like by seeing this statue of him in his garden. And so in the creation account that we're given in the Bible, God puts a reflection of himself, a statue, someone that will bear his image and his likeness in his garden, but it is not himself. He puts us there in his place. And then says that we are the stewards and we will tend this. He creates something in His likeness and breathes His own breath into it and gives us life. And you, staring into a mirror, are in many ways a reflection of God Himself. And when God gets done doing all this in verse 31, He says He looks down on what He saw and it was very good. Anybody walk this morning in front of your mirror, look the way you were seeing and be like, very good, nicely done, Lord. And out? I've never thought that a day in my life, but God thinks about that about me every single day. 23 minutes. It took me 23 minutes to rattle off all the things I didn't like about myself, all the flaws that I saw. At the 23 minute mark, I got to this guy, scar on my chin. And it brought back a memory, another one. When I was 17 years old, I was told for the very first time that I could play hockey without a full face shield on ice. And for someone who's been called babyface their entire life, if you've got a chance to man up and take a full face shield off, you're going to do it. So, I take the full face shield off my helmet. In the first shift of the first game I ever get to play without a full face shield, I run out to the point in order to block somebody's slap shot. I put my stick out and instead I deflect this puck that goes straight into my face. It splits my jaw open, dislocates my jaw. There's blood running all down my jersey and I can't even talk anymore because my jaw is completely dislocated. But I'm too tough, of course, to admit that this has happened or that I'm going to go down over this. So I actually put tape over my face as blood bled on and figured I'll go to the ER when the game's done even though we... I went on to score a hat trick that day, and it was a very big game, and I felt like a man. And, and I get into the ER, and my mom takes me, and she's so angry, of course, that I didn't go in earlier. And as I'm sitting in the ER, and the doctor comes in, he's like, yeah, it's a pretty good gash. It's going to take some stitches to fix that, and we'll, we'll get your jaw back in place as well. And this is what the little boy inside of me said to him, looking up at the doctor. Do you think you could make the stitches big? Because I think it would be really cool to have a scar. Even as I'm sitting here with my jaw dislocated and blood coming out of my face, the little insecure boy inside of me still wants to look like a man and be tough. Do you think you could make the stitches big? Because I think it would be really cool to have a scar. We are all so conscious of what everybody else thinks about us. And I think the mirror that you and I are using in life too often isn't the one in our bathroom. And it isn't the mirror of Scripture telling us who we are. It's the voices of the world around us telling us over and over again, this is who you are. This is what it means to be beautiful. This is what it means to be strong. This is what it means to be successful. And the most dangerous part about that is if you give that voice in your life a sense of authority, it will own you. 
It will be, come over and over again. That's what, that's what we strive for. That's what we live for. And what we look at when we look at ourselves in the mirror in the morning is what we think other people want to see. And that's what we try to create ourselves to be. Not listening to the voice of God that says, this is who you are. I started thinking scars, scars, 26 minutes. Scars in the Bible. Scars when Jesus was raised from the dead were actually the proof of the resurrection, right? Thomas, put your hands in the holes in my fingers and in the gash in my side. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He comes back on the other side of the dead. And apparently beauty in all its perfection still has scars. When the Apostle John in the book of Revelation sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father in his visions of heaven, he sees a slain lamb. Jesus, even in heaven, bears the scars of his life. And I thought, oh my goodness, if Jesus is the first fruits of the new creation, come back from the dead and he still has scars, this puppy might not be with me for the rest of my life. I might have it for all eternity. And maybe, just maybe, the scars that I have and the things that I don't like actually are of infinite worth to God himself because that's how he sees me. And maybe everything that I thought was beautiful or everything I thought I wanted to be needs to come into question. Can I see myself as God sees me? Warning, reflections in this mirror may be distorted by socially constructed ideas of beauty. How much anxiety have you and I all in this room occupied in our lives? Striving to be something for somebody. This moving target, this, uh, this mirage on the horizon of whatever it is that beauty would be. If I was just this strong, if I could just lift this much, if my hair was just this long, if it was this color, if this person would date me. If I had, and like a mirage on the horizon, we get close and it vanishes through our fingers like a mist and it's gone again and again. And we keep chasing. In the 1500s, in all the Renaissance paintings, this was the image of beauty for a woman. This is what every woman wanted to look like and what every man desired. Our socially constructed ideas of beauty are constantly changing. Most women today wouldn't say, that would be my picture of beauty in my mind's eye. That's what I hope I look like. But they're socially constructed. They change over time and they change over culture. Here's a picture of beauty today in a model on a runway. Very different images, right? In 500 years, somehow humanity has changed its mind on what we think is beautiful. The mirror of Scripture has not changed. Since the first man was created and what God looked upon and said, bears my image and is beautiful, it has not changed. I get to do a ministry in Liberia with my wife in, in Liberia, West Africa. We go there every year, and we had a conversation after our relationship started getting deeper and deeper with the pastors there. I was doing a pastor's conference, and I said, you guys can ask me any question you want. And one of the guys asks me, are you really poor in America? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. We all like to complain about not being paid enough money. But um, no, actually, I do quite well. And then they said, then, why is your wife skinny? Because in the second poorest country in the world, the greatest affirmation that you could ever have that you were a man was that you could provide so well for your wife that she could be as big as she wanted to be. One ocean away, living in the same time period, a socially constructed idea of beauty was so entirely different. 
here I was teaching all these pastors, apparently from this eight years of college education that I've been privileged to receive in the United States of America. All the while, they're feeling sorry for me because they think I'm poor. Simply because of our cultural ideas of what it means to be beautiful. I don't know if any of you have seen this picture. It was passed around the internet or the video that went with it. This woman put out her picture and said, what I want is for everybody to... I'm going to send this across the world and anybody who wants to Photoshop it and make me beautiful. So she's got all these images of, of herself stripped of makeup and everything else sent out and then this is a video showing of all the different places in the world and what they did with her in order to make her beautiful. If you can play that. <laughs> Isn't that amazing that there's this moving target all around us that we're all trying to reach for? And we're always worried about the eyes of the world that are upon us. I had this experience a little while back where I was going to visit um, a woman in our church when I was pastoring there at the time, and she was brought into ICU and she was really sick and wasn't doing well. So there was a phone call saying, Pastor, come on down. This woman's probably going to pass away. She'd love a visit from you. And I had my son with me and realized I didn't have a whole lot of time. So I take my oldest son with me and I t- explained to him, This is really important, Isaac. You've got to get this, okay? Like, she's going to be in the ICU. You can't touch stuff. This is really serious. In fact, Roxy might be dying. And so as we pull into the hospital parking lot and get ready to approach those glass doors, you know, that separate and you kind of go in the automatic, my son walks in at eight years old at the time and does this. And I'm thinking to myself, get up, you're going to make us look foolish, right? Like, what are you doing? Thinking he's just being a kid. And he turns to me and looks at me like, you idiot. I'm praying for Roxy. 
I was so convicted in that minute, thinking, oh my goodness, who looks more like their Heavenly Father right now? Who do you think He's delighting in? The one who's so worried about the world's eyes? Do they see us? Do we look foolish? Or the one buried with his face on the ground, laying prostrate, praying for the life of somebody else? Who do you think God delighted in more as the Father that day? I was so struck by that. I think this is part of why God tells us to have faith like a child, because kids don't care so much what people think about them. In a recent survey, somebody asked a whole classroom full of kindergartners, how many of you here are artists? Everybody puts up their hand. In third grade, the question gets asked, how many of you are artists? And about five people in the class put up their hand. By grade nine, how many of you are artists? And two people put up their hand. Everybody's so afraid, but when we're little kids, we just simply don't care. We're not as worried anymore. We, we, we learn this social fear over time. This is my oldest son, Isaac, the one I was just talking about. When he was born, he was the firstborn male on both sides of my wife's family and mine. He was named after my dad and her dad, Isaac Bryan. He is the rightful heir in traditional, as the right of primogeniture, the firstborn male on both sides. He's the inheritor, essentially, of everything. We don't tell him that. Um, <laughs> but I'm so, it's my firstborn son. He's named after my daddy as my middle name. When he was born, I remember just... My life changing and thinking, this is what it feels like to be a dad. Like, I would lay down my life for that kid. I would do anything for him. I love him so much. He is my son. Not long after, my wife and I decided we want to have some more kids. We went through a series of five miscarriages in a row. A whole, one of the biggest struggles we've ever gone through in our marriage. Midterm pregnancies that kept ending one after another and all this loss and heartache and tears and mourning that we shared together. Through that process, God changed our hearts and opened us up to what we felt He was calling us to in adoption. A couple of years later, we ended up adopting our middle son, Judah, from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. On the day after he was born, he was left in a basket in front of a police station in a little town called Dukum. Like the story of Moses, his mother loved him so much to leave him somewhere that he would be found because she could not provide for him. Two months later, a court in Addis Ababa declared that that too was my son and he was given my name. This piece of paper proves it. And when that happened and I got that phone call, now I have two sons in my life, one biological, one adopted. But you see, in my family, there's no two-tiered system of love. I don't love my biological son different than I do my adoptive son. My will doesn't say that my biological son gets three-quarters of everything and my adopted son gets only a quarter. There's no two-tiered system of love. One person isn't loved more than the other. Whenever anybody asks me, which one is your real kid, I about punch them in the face because they're both my real kids. One happens to be biological and one adopted. And when I got that piece of paper and had to wait for my plane, if I would have known that that kid needed anything, I would have swam the Atlantic Ocean with anything I needed on my back and ran to him because he is my son. He bears my name. I would do anything for him. And the process gets done and I'm overwhelmed by emotion and I'm coming home with my wife on the airplane and I'm realizing, oh my goodness, I'm a pastor, Sunday's coming, I've got to preach something. And I've got to baptize this new kid. 
And I got to baptize my first son. And now I'm going to come back and I'm going to get to baptize my second son. And I remember somewhere over the middle of the Atlantic, coming across this passage and reading it again for the first time from Romans chapter 8. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. Co-heirs with Christ. When Jesus did what He did on the cross and through the grave for you and for me, we were elevated to the same status as Jesus, co-heirs of the kingdom of God. Everything that was rightfully His after conquering death, He shares equally with us. Adopted to sonship and daughtership, you and I have the same rightful standing now before God that Jesus does. And then I said it for the first time with my mouth. God loves me as much as He does Jesus. God loves me as much as He loves Jesus. He would not have given us this language of adoption to sonship if it didn't mean putting us at the same place. Have you ever thought of it like that? As enamored as God is with His Son, Christ So too does He feel about you. This is who you are. This is why the Word needs to speak to us again and again and again, because this is your identity. God is in love with you. God died for you. God raised you to the same place as Jesus. God put you in the center of creation and said, The world, this is my reflection. This is who I am. It is very good. I hope that the next time you look in the mirror, you see something in yourself the way that God sees you. And that the mirror that we hold up is the mirror of Scripture and the voice of God speaking over us and not the lies of our culture and not the evil one who plays tapes in your mind. This is who you are. This is as good as you will ever be. The world might rank people on beauty and stature and size and gender and socioeconomic status and anything else. But in the kingdom of God, these walls come down because you are as loved as the, much as the one who died for you. This is your identity. Will you join me in prayer? Father, it is so hard to wrap our minds around how much it is that you love us. And that you see us like you see Jesus. And that you love us as much. Father, we thank you that we bear your image. And we repent for all the times that we've chased somebody else's approval rather than yours. Father, I pray for every student in this room. That they would be made free in their own skin. To be who you created them to be, an image bearer of you, beautiful in your sight, very good according to your declaration, sons and daughters of you according to our adoption in Christ. Father, may these realities identify us, dispel the lies and the myths that are spoken to us. May we see ourselves clearly as you do. In Jesus' name, amen.